Good morning, church. It is a joy to be gathered together all in one place at one time. Thank you so much for being here this morning. We're continuing our sermon series called Last Words. And when our Lord Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, he mentions seven phrases that I believe give us a sense of the type of lifestyle that he wants us to live. The first statement he makes is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's a statement that indicates Jesus wants us to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. The next thing he says is, today you'll be with me in paradise. We serve a God that can take our worst day and transform it into our best day. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus wants us to live a lifestyle of hope. Jesus also from the cross, speaking to his mom, says, Mother, behold your son. And in that statement, Jesus gives us some clarity that he wants us to live a lifestyle of authentic community. And last Sunday was Easter. Can we get a hand for Lindy Loveland? She's not even going to know we've given her a hand. Was that not awesome, church? Jesus from the cross says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And that's his statement of tribulation. But it's also his statement of victory. And this morning we're going to be talking about God's desire for us to live in his will. And the statement we're looking at this morning is found in the Gospel of John in the 19th chapter in the 28th and 29th verses. And if you would, please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 19. If you have the WFR Church app, I was just on it this morning. My outline is on there. You can follow the outline uh, right on your tablet, your iPhone, or, or whatever electronic device you have as long as you've got the uh, WFR Church app downloaded. And I just want to take a moment while you guys are turning there to thank everybody who's tuned in and watching with us online. In the Gospel of John, in the 19th chapter, Jesus makes a statement that gives us a sense that his humanity has been all but poured out for our forgiveness. In John chapter 19, verse 28, the Bible says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. If you got a pen or you have the opportunity to highlight a part of that verse, I want you to highlight this phrase, knowing that everything had now been finished. In the scriptures we see this moment in time where Jesus empties out his humanity, where he suffers to the greatest degree he possibly could, in this moment he was fulfilling the will of God for his life. Our Lord Jesus Christ decided that he was going to take to the finish line the plan that God had laid out for him regardless of the cost because of his love for you. And at this moment, Jesus knew that everything was being accomplished. And at that same moment, he's compelled 
to mention something about his humanity, that he's been pushed to his absolute limit, that there's not much more of him left, and that a little satisfying of his thirst would go a long way to comforting him. If you go to the book of Philippians chapter 2, you get a good sense of Jesus' mindset in terms of his obedience to the will of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, and I've got it on screen for you here. The Bible says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And he took on the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, he was found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death. Death on a cross. This was God's plan for Jesus' life. And throughout history, we see that our God is so sovereign and so powerful that He can use the sinful decisions of broken people to accomplish His will. Let me say that again. Our God is so sovereign and He is so powerful that he can use the sinful decisions of broken people to accomplish his will. And in this moment, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's saying that he thirsts, it is God's will for our Lord Jesus Christ to redeem mankind. And that's God's plan throughout history. There are a couple of places in Scripture that I want to mention that I want you to write down that I'm not going to have on the screen that represent God's sovereign bringing to pass His will using the sinful decisions of broken people. One of those stories is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 50 and verse 20. Um, Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, has a young son named Joseph. And Joseph's brothers are jealous of him. And they put him in a pit. And then they sell him into slavery and he gets imprisoned. And through lots of trial and lots of tribulation, he ultimately ends up in a very prominent position in the nation of Egypt. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph himself says to his family, who are now seeking his favor for their sustenance, that what you guys meant for evil... And he's talking to his brothers there. And what he's meaning is your own sinful desire, your own human nature, your own jealousy, and your own lust for power. All of that is your responsibility. And you meant casting me in this pit for evil. You meant selling me into slavery for evil. But God used your sinful decisions to bring about redemption, not just for you guys but for God's whole nation of Israel. God's not culpable for the sinful decisions of Joseph's brothers. But God uses their sinful brokenness to bring about redemption for God's people. We see a similar story in Isaiah chapter 10. You can turn there, you can just write it down, or you can follow along in your notes. In Isaiah chapter 10, the Israelite people is a rogue nation. They've stopped following God. And God decides to use the pagan king of Assyria 
to overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel so that they can experience consequences, so that Israel can experience consequences for their misbehavior. And God warns them what He's going to do in Isaiah chapter 10, and He brings it to pass throughout the course of time. God used the pagan sinfulness of the nation of Assyria to bring about consequence for the nation of Israel in hopes of redeeming that nation. God's not culpable for the sinful paganness of the, of the Assyrians, but He does use their sinful brokenness to bring about His plan, which is the redemption for His kingdom of Israel. And I do want to read you this verse. This is Acts chapter 4 and verse 28. I want to read this to you. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, the Bible says this, They did, they being the people who crucified Jesus, they did what your hand, speaking about the hand of God, they did what your hand and your will had decided beforehand should happen. The people who crucified our Lord did what God's hand and God's will had decided beforehand should happen. Now what God decides beforehand that should happen is that Jesus will be punished for your sin. Jesus will be beaten for your iniquity and He'll die a death that you should die as a result of your own sinfulness. And God used the free decisions of a sinful, broken people... To bring that to pass. But God's not responsible for it. And sometimes that can get confusing. And I don't want to make this too much a sermon about the will of God. That can be kind of confusing. Trent, it sounds like in Acts chapter 4, the Bible says it was God's will. Isn't he culpable for the sinful decisions of those people that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? The answer to that is no. Let me give you the illustration that I like to help facilitate kind of your understanding about this. Okay? I, I, I'm from Kansas. Where's, where's anybody else that has ever lived in Kansas? Give me an amen. Come on, guys. Amen? That was two people. Okay. So when I drive to Kansas, it's like a 10-hour car ride, and I have an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 4-year-old, and I am just about plum crazy by the time I get to Kansas, having driven with three kids age 8 and younger. So on the journey back home, my foot can get a little heavy on the gas pedal. Come on, somebody who else puts gets a little heavy on the gas pedal. Okay. Now, there have been a few times where men and women of law enforcement, let me just take a second to say, I appreciate, respect, and admire all men and women who serve uh, in, in law enforcement. Can we give those men and women a clap? A clap of hands. All right. So it is not the will of the men and women of law enforcement in Louisiana and Arkansas and Oklahoma and Kansas that I speed. That's not their plan for me or for my family. So what they do is they set up a situation where they can take my bad decisions and use them against me for an opportunity to promote my own growth. Okay? So they hide out behind some building or some plants or something, and here I am blowing right by, and they catch me speeding. Now, they were sitting, waiting for me to speed, because they knew people would be driving faster than they should. They knew that for sure, okay? 
Just because they knew I was going to be speeding through a place I shouldn't be speeding doesn't mean they're culpable for the fact that I sped. Okay? They knew I would be speeding. They, they set up a situation so that they could catch me. They were so certain somebody would be speeding over that, through that area. They, they, they set up a situation so that they could catch me speeding. And why did they set that situation up? And why did they want me to pay a consequence for my sinful, misbehaving speeding? They want Trent, they want Trent to become a more responsible driver. That's how that situation works. That's exactly what our Lord God does with the cross of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why our Lord Jesus spoke in parables. Okay? There's so many times you're reading the Gospels and you're thinking, why didn't Jesus just share directly with with the people of his time who he was? Why wasn't he just very clear? And not only was he not clear, but sometimes people would recognize that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And he would say things like, Peter, you're right, I am the Son of God. And by the way, don't tell anybody what you know. You see, Jesus understood that he was on the earth to execute the will of God. And to do that, Jesus needed to use the sinful decisions of a broken people to bring about redemption for all mankind. That's how our God works through time. And he uses your brokenness and he uses mine to achieve his purposes. So the first thing I want to say is that your brokenness is not a cause for defeat as much as it's a cause for additional surrender. Your brokenness is not a cause for your feeling of defeat as much as it's a cause for additional surrender. And I want to I tell you this morning that the first piece of evidence that you are living in God's will is not that you're perfect, but that you're surrendering. The first piece of evidence that you're living in God's will is not that you're perfect, it's that you're surrendering. And let me say a second thing about that. Another piece of evidence that you're living in God's will has nothing to do with whether or not you're experiencing active victory in the situations that you need to experience victory in. Our Lord Jesus Christ is victorious as He is hanging on a cross. To people who are outsiders looking in, it looked like all hope was lost, that He was defeated, that He had totally given in. And in Jesus Christ, that's the second symptom of knowing you're in God's will, is as you totally surrender, you don't have to be worried or anxious or fearful if it doesn't seem like victory is being granted right in that moment. Because you know that God is constantly and actively working to use the sinful decisions of broken people to bring about His will. We have to look at the Scriptures to get a little bit more clarity about what it means to totally surrender and what that meant for Jesus. I want you to write down Psalm chapter 69 and verse 3. This is a messianic psalm. It gives us a sense of who the Messiah will be and what will happen in his life. I don't have it up on the screen for the sake of time, but I want to read it to you this morning. Um, the, The Bible says this in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 3. I am weary with my crying. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. 
I am weary with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. This is a statement that describes a situation that the Savior will go through to redeem mankind. That his throat will be dry, he'll be weary with crying, so pushed to his limit that his eyes even feel like they're going to fail. And if you're going to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and your plan is to live in the will of God, then you have to understand that you are going to need to push yourself to your surrendering limit. You've got to push yourself to the limit of your surrender to really live in the will of God for your life. Jesus was pushed to his physical limit. When he says, I thirst, that's the last of his humanity being poured out. The last sensation I have, the last thing I can voice is that I just need a little satisfaction for my thirst. And this is so hard to get a sense of. In just a second, I'm going to have these guys play a clip. It's so hard to get a sense of what this feels like in life. How do I push myself to the greatest degree of my surrender? There were two ladies a few years ago running an Ironman triathlon race. And it's a two and a half mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a, and a half marathon, all in sequence with no breaks. And by the end of this race, people are pushed to their absolute physical limit, and they have to find a way to keep going. And I want to play a clip for you right now, and I want it to inspire you to push yourself to your greatest level of surrender. You guys play that clip for me, if you will. I thirst is Jesus' statement of his own humanity. And sometimes humanity isn't pretty. Sometimes it doesn't look fun to be a human being, to be pushed to my absolute limit, to be totally vulnerable, to be totally who I am, weaknesses, flaws, and all. But that's the level of sacrifice Jesus experienced for you, and that's the level He's calling you to if you're going to live in God's will. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, 
we see the first drink offering offered to Jesus. I do want you to write that down. Matthew 27, verse 34. Before they offered Jesus wine vinegar, which would have been to satisfy his thirst, they did what they normally do to people who are crucified, and they offered Jesus a mixture of gall, which would have been a mild anesthetic. And when Jesus has offered the mixture of gall in Matthew 27, 34, the Bible says there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Not only if you're going to live in in total surrender to, to the Lord's will for your life, do you have to push yourself to the limit. You also have to be prepared to never, ever take the easy way out. When we're staring a mountain in, a, in, a, in the face, when we're battling with the enemy and we're fatigued, it's easy to take a drink, to pop a pill, to watch a video, to, to lay in bed, to just check out, to just take the easy way out. And it would have been so easy for Jesus to do the exact same thing. And he says, no, every single time the enemy affords him an opportunity to make things easier. He loves you enough to do it right every single time. And he's challenging you to not take any shortcuts. And here's the phrase that I, that I, that I want you to remember about that. It is better... And I promise you this, and I don't have time to tell you my story, and I don't have time to get you the 15 people up here that would attest to this. But here's the truth, church. It is better living in pain and being in the will of God than living in pleasure outside God's will. It is better living in pain. Praise God. It is better living in pain... And living inside the will of God than living in pleasure outside of God's will. Isaiah 53.10 gives us that idea very clearly. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Listen to this. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God's will, when you're living in total surrender to God's will, will always lead to your prosperity. It always will lead to your blessing. It's not going to always feel like that in the moment. Sometimes it's going to feel like I am hanging absolutely on a cross and there is nobody around to support me, to encourage me, to uplift me. But God's will, if you're living in it, will always lead to your prosperity. It always will. That's the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's every single believer's testimony who's ever surrendered to the point of being in the will of God. Jesus' desire for you is to live a lifestyle in God's will. You know you're living in the will of God when you totally surrender. You also know you're living in the will of God when you become spiritually mature. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and verse 17, the Bible says this. This is Jesus speaking. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whose decision is it to do God's will? It's yours. 
And living in God's will according to Jesus is something more to be experienced than it is to be explained. In other words, you don't get the sense of what it's like to have confirmation that you're in the will of God until you start to surrender and you start to engage in the deliberate daily decisions that will develop your spiritual maturity. That's what John 7, 17 is all about. And Jesus says this fully knowing it's going to cost him the cross to live in the will of God. We have to get up off the pew and make the deliberate daily decisions required to become spiritually mature. I was teaching about this in our our Sunday school hour. But we've developed a consumer mentality for the things of God. Man, you guys can listen to preachers way better than me online. And there are about three of them in the United States of America. Okay? You can listen to guys way better than me. You can find worship better than we do it. You can find churches that are newer than our church. And if you're not careful, you can start to develop a mentality that this is really about what I get, not what I can give. Man, that's not why we show up. We show up to become spiritually mature, man. We show up to surrender. We show up because it's a deliberate daily decision I can make to live the will of God for my life. And when I make those decisions, I find out what that's like. Not only do you need to make deliberate daily decisions that will help you become spiritually mature, you need to understand that God's will is a lifestyle. It's not the quarter mile. First Peter chapter 4 Verses 1 and 2, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, who's also the first person to run to the tomb when the news of Jesus' resurrection is heard. And it's no coincidence that the same guy that denied Jesus is the same guy who wants to go to the tomb first. Why? He knows he's made the biggest mistake of his life, and he wants to see if there's opportunity for redemption. And praise God, there is always opportunity for redemption at the foot of the cross. But what Peter learned is that it's not about my performance in any one moment. It's about a lifestyle of performance over a long period of time. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in in the body is done with sin. Listen to verse 2. As a result, they don't live, here's the phrase, the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but they live the rest of their earthly lives for the will of God. The rest of your life isn't a good week. The rest of your life isn't a good month. The rest of your life isn't even a good year. It's the rest of your life. And when you totally surrender and you're willing to give it everything you got and you're willing to get pushed to the limit and not take the easy way out, you're going to suffer. Peter did. And what he realized is that suffering he experienced as a result of his surrender developed him a taste for the spiritual and a distaste For the carnal. And when you develop a taste for the spiritual in your walk with God, you're able to have a lifestyle of spiritual maturity. Where the cheap thrills the world has to offer no longer appeal to you. And you'll know you're living in the will of God as you become spiritually mature. And the cheap thrills of this world can no longer entice you into sinning. 
Guys, I want to tell you, it's the suffering you're living through right now that God's using to develop that maturity in you. But sometimes that suffering causes you to think, man, I'm thirsty. Man, I'm thirsty. I feel fatigued. I feel like my eyes can't even cry another tear. I feel like I've been waiting on God and I almost can't even see. I just need a little bit of satisfaction. I just need a little something to keep going. Trent, I'm willing to fight that battle. I'm willing to try to totally surrender. I'm willing to try to become spiritually mature. But I just need something to help me to get through today. This idea of thirst is something that's really prevalent in the Gospel of John. In the fourth chapter of John's Gospel is one of the most powerful interactions related to this idea. I got John chapter 4 verse 14 on the screen for you. Jesus encounters a woman whose physical need for satisfaction from thirst carries her to a well in midday because of her shame. Normally you go to the well in the morning. So you'd have fresh water to drink all day and the rest of the afternoon. But she has to go in the afternoon because that's the time she's least likely to run into someone. She's been married multiple times. The person she's living with at this moment isn't even her husband. You think this woman doesn't feel fatigued? You think she learned to go to the well midday just because she dreamed it up? Absolutely not. She'd been ridiculed. She'd been mistreated. She'd been beaten up by the world so much that she learns how to adapt to basically become invisible. In other words, God, my suffering is so bad. I'm just going to go to the well when it's easiest, when it's most convenient to try to find a way through. And Jesus tells her something that reverberates through time that he wants you to know today. That if you're thirsty, there is a source of living water. Come on, somebody. That you can go to, and if you go to that source, you will never, ever, never thirst again. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus suffered the pains of physical thirst so that you'd never thirst spiritually, friends. I don't, know what the, I don't know what the burden is in your life right now. I don't know where the enemy is pushing you, but I know there's an area where you're starting to feel your physical fatigue that makes you want to cry out for relief, to make you utter a phrase like, I thirst, I just need some relief. And I want you to know that our Lord Jesus Christ is ready to satisfy your every need. And He wants to use every single hardship you ever go through to make you more into His image, which is God's will for your life. And there is nothing that this world can offer that satisfies like living in that will. I'm going to dismiss us with a prayer. And after I pray and and our service concludes, I invite you to stand and let's sing while all those who need to be ministered to from the Lord have an opportunity to respond. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We don't have the words to even say thanks for Jesus. God, we don't have the strength to describe 
His majesty. And sometimes the reason we don't have the strength is because we are, we are being pushed to the limit. And I know there are those individuals here today. And I ask that all who are being pushed to the limit, who feel like they got nothing physical left, to the point where they would just cry out for help, seeking anything to satisfy the pain, that this morning they would cry out to you. That they would say, God, I'm thirsty for more of you. And Lord, I pray that you'd move on those hearts this morning and that we would surround each person and love on them. And it's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen.